Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Democrats, Republicans, and the 2016 presidential election. So, Richard, this is our first sort of political conversation as the calendar year 2016 has gotten underway. You and I are talking today uh, less than a week removed from the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primary coming up very quickly after that. At the moment, the dominant story seems to be on the Republican side, a collective freakout amongst what we'd call the Republican establishment over the prospects of both Donald Trump and Ted Cruz as potential nominees for the Republican Party. What do you make of the panic that seems to be infesting Republican ranks right now? Well, I think that you have to actually break it up into two parts. There's the Trump part and there's the Cruz part. The Trump part is simply an imponderable that the Democrats and the Republicans both do not understand. The man seems to be impervious, no matter how indiscreet, no matter how vulgar, no matter how inappropriate. All it does is manage to improve his ratings. So that the hope that people had two, three months ago that the man would self-destruct seemed now to be a hope of the past. Uh, It's also clear that he's crazy like a fox in the sense that his ability to give one or two sentence, one or two word denunciations of other individuals is so powerful that they can never recover from it. Uh, Jeb Bush will remain the low energy man until he dies because Donald Trump decreed him as such. And dealing with him is an enormous problem. What makes it worse is most of the Republicans, as best I can tell, dislike intensely Ted Cruz. They regard him as excessively egomaniacal, rather duplicitous in the way in which he does business, not trustworthy, completely non-cooperative. His relationships with others in the Senate turns out to be extremely bad. And now it turns out that he is the major rival with respect to Trump, uh, so that the standard Republican establishment candidates, roughly Jeb Bush, Mario Mario, no, Marco, Marco, Marco Rubio, not Mario Cuomo, Marco, Marco Rubio, um, Chris Christie and John Kasich are essentially all mired at 10 or 12 percent. And so given this particular situation, the Republican Party is essentially afraid that its major donor base and a large part of its operatives will withdraw if Trump is chosen, and many of them may well do the same if Cruz is chosen. And yet these other guys keep getting in each other's way. None of them is going to get some momentum. And so what they are now going to push for very hard is for the bottom part of this thing to disappear. My guess is that they will coalesce around Marco Rubio, but this is sufficiently volatile that nobody, particularly an outsider, can really tell. But this is really the moment of desperation for the Republicans. They hoped that this would have all blown over and disappeared, but now as we're within a week of the, of the first uh, caucuses and we see Trump still in a dominant position, the notion that he will just simply wither away and die is no longer with us. As a classical liberal, how do you regard the prospect, however distant maybe at the moment, of a potential Trump presidency? In the sense that you know, we have had people, his fellow Republicans, refer to him as essentially a fascist. I mean, what sort of dangers, to the extent that we know, because obviously some of this is 
uh, seemingly off the cuff with him. But what what do you what do you read in the tea leaves there in terms of limited government or Donald Trump? Well, I mean, I think the man is basically an autocrat. I think he regards the United States as a playpen. Uh, he'd like to run it the same way in which he runs the Trump company, which is to run roughshod over everybody else who disagrees with him. I think the notion that other people have vested entitlements is not very congenial to a man who says you are fired to everybody who walks into his door. And so the whole different milieu associated with public life is something which he will not be able to master and he's going to stub his toe and everybody else's head in various kinds of impossible positions. So both Republicans and Democrats fear the fact that they're going to have this basically unchained cannon, loose cannon running around in the White House with enormous power and no sense of the conventional limits that he has to follow. One of the things that we know about constitutions in general is they set basic outlines for the way in which various branches of government work, but they leave a huge amount to play that's filled in by custom and comedy, that is cooperation between actors. He doesn't know about the customs and he doesn't care about the comedy. Uh, And so people are just frightened to death anybody who's in government, that he will manage to wreck it. And what his attitude is, hey, isn't this a nice thing to do? Because the egomaniacal nature of this man seems to know no upper bound. Switching over to the other side of the aisle, Hillary Clinton definitely still regarded as the Democratic frontrunner. Most people probably would have been surprised, though, if we had told them a year ago how viable Bernie Sanders was going to be, how well he was going to be doing going into the polls shortly before the first caucus and the first primary. Richard, it's interesting. Bernie Sanders' candidacy is very much a criticism of the status quo, but is the status quo of a Democratic administration for the last seven or eight years. How do you sort of get your head around the the psychology on the left behind the Sanders campaign? Well, what happens, of course, is the Democratic Party has been divided into a number of factions. Uh, Traditionally, the Democratic Leadership Council was basically right-wing Democrats, the kind of person Bill Clinton was, not today perhaps, but when he was in office. And he knew he had to placate the bond market on the other hand and try to put sensible social welfare programs into place on the other. And if you go back and see the way in which the Clinton years worked, you had the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is a relatively moderate piece, which the left today is trash. Um, And you had free trade agreements and you had welfare reform, none of which they liked. And you had essentially a kind of an accommodation with Wall Street and the financial interests. Um, The Hillary Clinton left essentially says, you know what, we've got to do a little bit more on regulation and a little bit more on redistribution, a little bit more on taxation. But it's the Bernie Sanders part of the left which says, look, these sort of gradualist approaches are really terrible. What we have to do is to start with free everything for everybody and then finance it out of a series of taxes which are on capital and labor, particularly at the upper end. And this resonates, I think, with large numbers of people who believe that they've been systematically excluded from the system. And what they think is you've got to get a guy who has bona fides, who can move the system radically, control inequality, and a lot of other things. Hillary Clinton is not that person. They look at her and they see a woman of privilege. They see a woman who flies on corporate jets, who gets $500,000 for speeches, who lives in a fancy house in Chicago or whatever it is that she does, and they just do not relate to her at all. Bernie is essentially a much more open guy, much more congenial, and so people start to like him. My fear, of course, is they don't listen to what he says and understand the way in which he will wreck social institutions. You think you can impose a tax on capital transaction, the sale of shares, but you can't do something like that. 
the tax will essentially kill liquidity in the market. Uh, our good friend Bernie Sanders doesn't think that's a big deal. But when you next go to your ATM machine and you find out that you can't get the cash out under the circumstances you want, you will start to think this is a very good deal. And as markets become inefficient, rates of return fall, pension funds become smaller, tax burdens become great, taxes become smaller, and you have the classic dilemma in which you have huge entitlements which you can only fund marginally by taxation. You're going to have to go to either to massive borrowing on the one hand or inflation on the other, and you'll have a kind of a move in the direction of Venezuela. The man, as best I can tell, is utterly in oblivious utterly oblivious uh, to the long-term consequences of what he's done. He is a completely uneducated human being because what he does is he knows about desires and he knows nothing about scarcity and he knows nothing about institutions and nothing, therefore, about their fragility in the face of government attacks. It's interesting when you look at the Sanders campaign. Some people said this even about the Obama campaign. Attracting bigger numbers than you would have expected for somebody going that far to the left until fairly recently in American history. Flip side of that, the Trump campaign, a populist, sort of, as you said, sort of autocratic appeal that we thought for a long time was sort of beyond the capacity of attracting a substantial amount of support in American politics. Is there, my question for you, stemming from all this, does it feel like something's changing? Like some of the fundamentals we took for granted in America's political character are maybe eroding at this point. Oh well, yeah, I think in effect the uh, kind of impatience that one sees and the demand for particular results has had a very bad effect on the way in which Americans think about policy. Um, so what happens is there's the notion that um, incremental regulatory reform doesn't make any sense and the notion that any form of deregulation is absolutely absurd. Uh, so that what happens is instead of a sensible approach of trying to open up labor markets by removing barriers to entry, what you see is exactly the opposite. Now people say, oh, it's got to be at least a $15 minimum wage, and then you want more family leave protections. And the more you do all this stuff, the more these markets are going to contract, the more angry you will get. But since people don't have a theory, they will simply double down on mistakes. And so that on the labor side, I think, explains a huge amount of the dissatisfaction, because although the top 1% does very well, because they're not hit by a minimum wage law in any way, shape, or form, people at the bottom have seen their wages essentially drop. And they've dropped even after you take into account transfer payments through one kind of government program for another. Uh, when you add to this the kind of diversity stuff, you can see what's going on. One of the reasons why I think Sanders has done particularly well on this is he is not closely allied with the civil rights movement. Um, he's essentially a populist who's worried about the economic stuff. So he can appeal to sort of lower income and middle income people who are white because he's not closely tied to the racial establishment. Um, and in fact, as he tries to woo more black voters, I think he could actually run into some tension because there's a deep division on the Democratic side between the so-called Reagan Democrats, as they used to be known, right, and the radical left. And he's trying to do uh, kind of an accommodation between them. Uh, when it comes to Hillary Clinton, she is more on the civil rights side of this division and less on the poor people side of this division. She's less sensitive to economic stagnation. And her proposals, even though they're, they're misguided, but they also miss the mood of the people. 
people today do not understand why asking people to have longer holding periods for capital gains relates to anything that they do. People like myself who actually understand the way these markets work realize that if you don't allow alienability in shares, you'll never get corporate discipline on the one hand or the movement of resources to better allocations of uses on the other. But what she says appeals to her kind of elite democratic types. It doesn't appeal to the kinds of people who jump over barriers in order to shake Bernie Sanders' hand. If you look at her style, she's an old woman. And even though he's older than her, he's a younger man. She's got leg feet. She comes out there and she looks like a school mom. Uh, what happens is she has a kind of implicit authoritarianism, a kind of I deserve the privilege type situation, which turns off the populist voters she wants. And then now that she continues to be enmeshed in this email type scandal, which is I think is very serious, she, I think, could easily be toppled, less likely perhaps in the call where maneuvering takes place, more likely in New Hampshire, where it's essentially a popular primary. And the final question that I'll put to you then, parties aside, personalities aside, come a year from now, someone new will be taking the oath of office for the presidency. What's the, the top-line assignment for that person in your mind? What are the most important things for the next president to do transition us out of this Obama period, which you've been very critical of in conversations we've had on this show before. Well, first of all, what you have to do is to essentially pull the left back to the right, and you have to pull the right a little bit to the left. Um, there is, at this point, no overlap between the two parties on a whole wide range of issues. We've only been talking about the domestic stuff. You throw in foreign policy and what you do with respect to Iraq and ISIS and so forth, you see a similar disarray. And you have to have somebody who essentially can talk to both size and talk some sense into them. And the only way you can do that is to essentially say, look, you're trying to figure out how regulation is going to stop abuses and how regulation is going to stop inequality, but you have to ask the question, is regulation going to kill growth? And then you must tell people uh, that if you shrink the pie, there will be no elegant way in which you can divide the losses. If you can expand the pie, then there may be a tenable way in which you can divide the gains, and that what you have to do is to get a growth agenda first. And the Republicans tepidly hint at that, but they don't push very hard. The Democrats sort of think that there are different arrangements. You could have any level of growth with any level of redistribution. And that, of course, is the intellectual naivete of Barack Obama, which carries over and which regrettably is supported all too often by too many people who purport to be learned economists who think that inequality comes first and growth will kind of take care of itself. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.